Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, my name is Adi and I'm a junior in high school. And I'm Sabah and I'm a senior. And this is Class Notes, a podcast where we discuss high school. The good and the bad. The boring and the exciting. The humor and the misery. It's really exciting that we're on episode 5 of our podcast, especially considering that we didn't even think we would make it this far. (laughs) If you haven't already, take a look at some of our past episodes where we discuss fourth-term blues, college apps, and social media. You can also follow us on Instagram at Class Notes Podcast. We hope you'll enjoy our fifth episode where we will be interviewing Dr. Donna Kim Murphy, a neurologist and Harvard graduate who grew up in Houston, Texas, studied neuroscience at the Baylor College of Medicine. Dr. Murphy is a parent in our district and is currently a candidate in the upcoming school board elections for Pearland ISD trustee position 5. We really want to thank you, Dr. Murphy. We're excited to have you on our podcast today to talk about the important issues our school district is facing. Thank you so much for inviting me to speak with you. So first of all, we'd love to know a little bit more about yourself and your story. We know a lot of students are interested in your background. So why did you want to be a doctor and what inspired you to run for the school board in Pearland? Those are great questions. Um, My path to becoming a doctor has been kind of circuitous. Um, I I said that I wanted to be a doctor when I was a child, I think, out of vengeance (laughs) because I was upset about um, getting shots from the doctor. Um, And then I, uh, you know, kind of matured. Um, At some point, I thought I wanted to go into medicine just for the purpose of doing policy, actually, ultimately. I was really interested in global health policy um, after having participated in a program called Amigos, um, which sends young people um, high school age to Latin American countries. Um, And at the time, they were very involved in um, various public health projects. So building latrines, um, building Lorena stoves, um, which are kind of environmentally sound stoves, um, human immunizations, rabies vaccinations, um, a number of public health health programs, basically, that they were participating in. And so I I was in that program or in that um, organization as a student, and then I became interested in um, doing that as a career. like policy through like the WHO or PAHO, the Pan American Health Organization. Um, And then I um, started uh, medical school. So ultimately, I went to medical school with that in mind. Um, I started medical school and I got a little bit distracted. Um, There was somebody who came into our first year medical school class who uh, presented the opportunity to do a year of research during medical school. So to to add tack on an additional year of the four years that you generally are in medical school and um, sold it to me or sold it to our class as um, something that is, you know, a once in a lifetime opportunity. There's such great um, scientists who work at Baylor College of Medicine. And so often the medical students don't have an opportunity to get to know their work. Um, and in addition to that, you know, you may not know as a first year medical student what 
uh, discipline you want to go into clinically. Um, but if it happens to be any uh, competitive field, it helps to have research um, experience. And so for all of those reasons, I decided to take one year off and about two to three months into that year in a neuroscience lab, it was a systems neuroscience lab where we were studying uh, visual perception. Um, I got super um, fascinated by, by vision and how it works in the brain. Uh, I decided that I didn't even want to do medicine anymore. <laughs> so then um, I actually tried to get into the MD-PhD program, which I did successfully. Um, and I thought a lot about really not even completing the MD ultimately. I, I finished a PhD in neuroscience, um, and then really just wanted to be in the lab for the rest of my life. Um, but I was dissuaded from doing that. And people said it was a bad idea. It was um, insecure um, to go that path. And so, you know, that may or may not be true. But I, I listened to those voices and decided that I will continue my clinical training. So then I ultimately finished um, medical school, then neurology residency and neurophysiology epilepsy fellowship. Um, and then what brings me here ultimately, which is, you know, now I'm the medical and scientific director of an EEG diagnostics company professionally. Um, but outside of my work, the unpaid labor that I do is also a big part of what I am passionate about. And um, that is largely advocacy work um, on behalf of immigrants. Um, and also, um, I mean, a number of other um, marginalized, historically marginalized groups. And then, you know, that actually brought to my awareness that where we are living here in Pearland, we are very heavily immigrant. Um, the, especially West Pearland has seen a lot of demographic change in the last 10 to 20 years. Um, we're very highly educated on balance and we're very heavily immigrant. So we're about 11% in the school district anyway, we're about 11% Asian American and about 35% Latino. Um, and yeah, I, I felt like um, our communities were not being represented when I attempted to go to the school board with issues of concern to our communities. Um, and I felt the only way to address that um, was to run for office. All right. That was a great journey. Um, <laughs> I'm going to be very honest with you. When people say school board, I don't always know what they do. Mm -hmm. um, so I really want to ask, what is the school board and what are they responsible for exactly? And like, can you give us examples? Yeah. So the school board ultimately is responsible for, in, in our district, about $180 million a year. Um, each student uh, gets money from the state of Texas. Uh, and then we also raise money in local taxes to fund your education in, in the public education system. And it's the responsibility of the board to ensure that there is good governance over those resources. Um, and they decide how that money is allocated uh, between uh, various, you know, ostensibly com competing programs, things that are happening in the district and services that we offer to different students. Right. Um, and they are also responsible for holding the superintendent accountable. And he is the person or she is the person. In this case, it's a gentleman. They're responsible for, you know, everything like the hiring in the district. Like ultimately, they are the person responsible. But the board holds that person accountable. Um, so that is the responsibility of the board. Um, we're also responsible for engaging with the community. So that's a big piece of what the board should be doing, where I also think there, there have been some system failures um, in that they do not do a lot of outreach to the community. And also the accessibility of the board is um, it's really disappointing 
to me. Um, so their, their board meetings are at 4 p.m., typically on Tuesdays once a month, um, which is not something that most working parents can make. And even students who are really involved in extracurricular activities may not be able to make that either. Um, teachers often can't make it. Um, so, so I don't know of the stakeholders who, who is actually going to show up at that meeting, right? Mm-hmm. And it's true that very often the attendance is very poor. Um, that, to me, is not real community engagement. It's not making them themselves accessible to the people that they're actually supposed to be representing. Um, so that's one thing that we want to change, is to change the, t- the time of that meeting, um, and also maybe the day even, to maybe a weekend or an evening, later in the evening. And also, when you go before the board in public testimony, the way those meetings are structured is that the first part of the meeting is typically public testimony. Um, the second part is like an executive meeting of the board, and that's usually in closed session, and then they'll come back out um, to finish finish the board meeting publicly. Um, but in that first piece where there is public testimony, you can go and sign up you know, right before the meeting to talk about whatever you'd like. That's your platform to communicate with the board and to the public, with the public as well. Um, the problem there is that, you know, this board, they, as a function of something called the Open Meetings Act, they're not supposed to actually respond to you because whatever you have to say wasn't already on the agenda. So it's in that way a little bit unfair to people who may have want to come to participate in that, right, if it was going to be a dialogue between you and the board. So they don't allow, like the state of Texas does not allow the board to respond to you um, with a few exceptions. They're allowed to say, like, if you misstated a fact, they're allowed to clarify. Um, they're allowed to say whether something will be put on the agenda, like for the next time, right? Um, but other than that, they cannot really interact with you. So fine, those are the that's the law. Um, but what they could do is have a policy that states that if somebody comes before the board with an issue, that they make a public decision about whether that item will be placed on the agenda in the, in the months to come, right? Um, and I think that that would be a lot more transparent. It would be a lot more um, engaging. So yeah, that also, the other thing they could do is to say, you know, within 20, 24 hours or 48 hours, we're going to turn around a response as the board. We're going to respond to that person in the community and their concerns. Um, that, again, would be more engaging than what they're doing now, which is basically like, you know, it's, it's kind of like talking into a black hole. <laughs> yeah, I like the idea of the response. because yes. It makes sense. Like if you want to go there and say something, you want someone to like at least acknowledge <laughs> you said something. Right. Yeah. So I know you talk a lot about having representation on the school board and within our student body as well. And one of the things on your on your published agenda was to increase the amount of non-European AP language courses. So uh, would you mind elaborating a little bit more on that? Yeah, so that actually emerged out of conversations that I had with um, a group of Chinese parents who are highly organized, as it turns mm-hmm. out, um, and they had gone before the board in the past um, asking them to uh, have an AP Chinese language and culture course, which we do not currently have. Um, we don't have any non-European languages, actually. Uh, I think the other option for AP is also Japanese language and culture. Mm-hmm. So it's not like you have like a million to choose from, but there there are a few more that you could put there that are not expressly just European languages. Um, and in this case, we have our community advocating for having one of those languages available or one of those AP level courses available. And what 
I was told by these parents is that the the answer they were given by the board at the time was that there wasn't enough money for it. And to me, that is it's such a punt that that answer, right? Because the board is responsible for allocating money um, to address what they view as priorities for the district. So if you had representation on that board, and that is a priority for your community, then there would be enough money, right? <laughs> um, so, yeah, so that was really upsetting to me. And it really, I think, drove home the point that you need someone on that board that will represent your interests. Yeah. So a lot of students are talking about GPA and how GPA is calculated at our school and how that adds a lot of stress to students. So we'd be interested to hear your thoughts on what changes we should be making to our sure. GPA policy. Yeah. So they, um, these same group of parents, actually, they, they um, last year asked the board to consider implementing a GPA policy much like the one that uh, we have at Memorial Senior High School in Spring Branch ISD, which actually happens to be my alma mater. That's where I graduated. Um, and they had a policy in place at that time um, that stated that you could take no more than four core classes um, AP level. Um, so that would be like math, science, English, and uh, social studies, I guess, right? Um, so four core classes where you would weight them um, with prefer preferential weighting, like you have here, where you get six points for an A and that, that kind of course, right? But you couldn't take any more than four for preferential weighting. Now, you could take more than four. You just wouldn't get preferential weighting for the other courses that you take, which means that students who are highly motivated, they will still take more than four, right? I still took more than four my, my senior year anyway. And so it doesn't deter you from doing things that you find feel would be challenging for you or of interest to you. But for instance, if you're a student who thinks, I really want to take this class, it's really of great interest to me, but it's not an AP class. In our system currently in Pearland ISD, that would be a huge deterrent, right? It's not AP level. I'm not going to get a six. I'm not going to take that class. And that's, to me, that's so painful because I want to see students have the freedom to choose what is of interest to them because you always pursue things with um, greatest effort uh, when it is something that you are passionate about. Another issue that I know you've discussed a lot, and I know a lot of, te a lot of teachers at our schools are concerned about this is the fact that certain groups of students are less likely to take the higher level AP courses and things like that. So I was looking at some statistics and for Glenda Dawson High School, the percentage of students who are African-American in an AP course is less overall than for white students and for Asian students. The point to make here is that what would be disproportionate is if they were only like what the number that I'm familiar with that is reported on the school website is about 15% of the population. And that's also consistent with what I've seen in the federal like DOE, the Department of Education numbers. So if they're about 15% of the overall student population, but they're like, say, 5% of the students in an AP in, in AP courses, that should be a red flag, okay. right? Because there is for me, I have no a priori reason to believe that African-American students are somehow less capable than other students or something like that, right? Like, I, I think that's an absurd proposition. Um, and so I would wonder what is true in the system that is dissuading them from taking those courses, right? Or what is true in the system that is um, enabling them um, or, or not caring for them enough, I guess, not being attentive enough to their needs, that they're dropping those courses, right? And they're not being counted ultimately in that, those numbers. Um, and I would want to address, again, those systems failures. One of the bigger things I want to ask you about is like the past few years, there's been a lot of discussion about mental health in our district and just like individually among social circles. So what is um, your position? What do you want to say about that? 
Yeah. So mental health, like from around 2005 to present, we've seen about a 40% increase in adolescent um, anxiety and depression. So clinical um, diagnoses of those disorders. Um, And we've seen a dramatic increase in teen suicide. In our district for teen suicide, I don't know what the numbers are for clinical diagnoses because that's kind of private health information. Mm -hmm. But for teen suicide, a conservative estimate from media reports and also from just personal, you know, connections to families who lost children, um, it's about 150 percent national average for teen suicide. And that to me, again, is it's, it's an alarm that something that we are doing here is not right. Um, and my intuition about it from talking to students and parents and teachers is that a big piece of it is not, it is a culture or a climate um, that doesn't really um, embrace the diversity of our community. So the various identities that students have, whether they're um, from economically disadvantaged families, whether they're special needs in some way, whether whether they identify as LGBT, um, whether they are from immigrant families. There's so many different identities that people have where I feel like, you know, I'm being told anyway, that they don't feel included in various ways in this district, right? Um, and that is not good. It's not conducive to good emotional well-being. Um, so I think that definitely contributes. I think that the you know unnecessarily toxic GPA system contributes to the stress and anxiety that students experience. That certainly can contribute to suicidal ideation or, or thinking about suicide and, and potentially acting on it. And yeah, the things that we can do about it, we can change the climate, right? We can say from the top, this is not acceptable. We will hold all people in this district, students, teachers, administrators, accountable for behavior that is non-inclusive and we will always send a message of inclusion in all of our communications with the public and how we interact with all of the stakeholders in our system. Presently, we do not do that. It is very uh, exclusionary in many ways. And that is something that needs to change from the top down. Um, the other thing that we can do, of course, is to make sure we're doing appropriate screenings for, chil- for children or students who are susceptible in some way. So for instance, LGBT students are actually much more susceptible to mental health illness and also to su- suicidal behavior. Um, So that is something to be attentive to, right? It's a public health concern for a vulnerable population of students. And yeah, so you want to screen students appropriately. You want to make sure that those who are most vulnerable, that you have high-risk intervention plans for high-risk interventions for those students as well. And I think a lot of this has to be done, unfortunately, because of the the state of um, school financing, um, which is really kind of pathetic. The The state of Texas has really grossly underfunded public education for a very long time. That's hopefully going to change after this legislative session because they have a really um, ambitious bill um, that's not perfect in many ways, um, but does try to address this issue. And hopefully we will have more resources, but at the end of the day, um, we may not have enough. And that means that we have to be creative in how we build partnerships with nonprofit organizations. And they, I mean, this is a win-win situation because for them, honestly, um, they, they get their grants by demonstrating impact. So if they ally themselves with a public school district, and they can demonstrate impact through that partnership, then it's it's a win for us. It's a win for them. Mm-hmm. So I think we can do that with, you know, even in, in the setting of limited resources. That's a great idea. I've never even considered the school board ever partner, partnering with a nonprofit. Yeah, I mean, the, the, currently the school board does partner with some nonprofits. Mm-hmm. Um, I think some of those partnerships are really powerful. Um, some of them, again, I think um, are a little bit exclusionary. Like um, in some cases, they've partnered with single faith counseling services. Again, we are a multi-faith district. I'm sure there are families who don't even identify with any particular religion. And, and to me, when you're dealing with very sensitive situations having 
to do with mental and emotional well-being. It's important that you know how to talk to those students and, and bringing their faith into that conversation is totally legit. But when our district is so diverse, you have to think very carefully about how that is done, right? I mean, maybe at the end of the day, it makes the most sense to stick with secular counselors to avoid the, the possibility that you may not be reaching this person, you know, um, because there is a difference. There's a disparity in, in the religion or the faith of the person who's providing the counseling and the person who's supposed to be receiving that service. Another issue of concern that I know I have a lot is that our current apps, our current exemptions policy at Dawson High School says that if you're absent for one day, even if it's for a medical reason, then you then you lose your perfect attendance exemption. Or if you're absent for four days, and even if it's for a medical reason, you lose all of your exemptions for the semester for your final exams. I know people who have a legitimate medical reason for which they have to miss multiple days of school, and then they end up losing all their exemptions and having to take yeah. final exams, which at the end of the day, don't really help your grade as much as they have the potential to hurt your grade. Yeah, yeah. Um, so your question is, like, what do I so think my question about is, that? Or? <laughs> my question is, like, what changes would you propose to that policy? I mean, first of all, I, w- I want to know what changes you would propose to that policy. <laughs> all right. So well, I do would you have any ideas on it. I would think that there should be an exemption made for medical purposes if you have a note for from a doctor. Yeah. But yeah. is that do you know why that it hasn't happened? Or? I, I, I cannot speak for the board currently. I can say that it is um, generally like a pretty punitive climate here. So maybe I mean, it's just that's kind of consistent with like we control how things are and, and that's how it's going to be. You know, we've always done it this way. So that's how it's going to be, you know, because that's kind of, um, it seems like a lot of practices are like that here in, in Pearland ISD. Um, so I'm, I'm very open. I mean, I, I always think that the people with the most um, relevant input into solutions for problems are the people who intimately experience those problems. So if this is something that really students are upset about, I think that students will have the best insight into how to resolve it, right? And I think that you guys are remarkably insightful also in fairness, right? Like you, you're not going to set up a policy that allows students to just be out all the time, right? <laughs> because you're smart. Like, you're not going to do that. Um, and I think that there is just a whole, uh, there's a lot of lack of trust coming from the board. And in general, I think from adults, you know, like they're, adults don't trust young people um, to make their own decisions. And they always, they often, not always, but they often will kind of impose decisions upon them. And I think it's really a disservice um, to to young people because you guys have great ideas a lot of the time if, if adults gave you the space to, to communicate those ideas. So lastly, Dr. Murphy, is there anything you want to stress to our audience? Any key takeaways for our listeners? I'm just super excited that the two of you asked me to do this, um, (laughs) that students are engaged in this way and are interested in engaging their peers in this way. Um, I think it's so important for people to take interest in their communities. There's this great book by Robert Putnam called Bowling Alone, uh, The Collapse and Revival of American Community. And it is about how in the last 50 years, and he posits that it's maybe a function of technology. I think that's certainly true with social media, that people have kind of fallen away from social institutions. And he brings up the League of Women Voters. He brings up, I think, religious institutions and bowling leagues. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think that it's a really powerful point to make that we are not engaging with each other in person um, and um, that you guys are here interviewing me and that you guys came earlier tonight um, to be 
engaged in the political process, I think is just, it's so um, inspiring to me. Um, and I hope that everybody listening um, to this podcast also considers the ways in which they can get involved in their communities. So as our fifth episode comes to a close, we want to thank Dr. Donna Murphy for a fruitful discussion about very real issues in our community. If you've made it this far in the podcast, all the way to episode five, Yay. <laughs> big thank you. And we'd love to hear your feedback on how we can make our podcast more relevant and interesting and suggestions for future topics. So thank you all for listening and we'll see you in episode six. This has been Class Notes. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.